I think that would do it, wouldn't it? That would, uh, that would promote misery. Well, the truth is, the path of pride is the path of misery. We, we looked at the word pride last week and noted that it's used different in the Bible than it is in our culture. It might mean something fairly positive. Hey, I'm proud of you in our own culture, but scripturally, it's a word that is very opposed to the character of God. It means a self-important view of ourself, an exaggerated view of our own abilities and who we are. Uh, and we need to learn to compare ourselves to God and have a proper estimation of him. Well, one that was filled with pride was King Nebuchadnezzar, as we noted last week in Daniel 4. And he had a dream, and Daniel interpreted the dream and said, these terrible things are going to happen to you personally if you don't repent. The, the dream said that your kingdom will be taken from you, and you are going to be sent uh, in, to basically to insanity, on the brink of insanity, and you're going to live among the beasts for seven seasons. Uh, could be seven years or uh, seven periods of time, but that was what he was warned. And today we pick up the story in part two of how God breaks our pride. In verse 28 of Daniel 4, it says this, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal place of Babylon. Now, uh, I do want to add here uh, about walking on the roof. Maybe you have a roof that's not, you, you can't picture what's going on here, but roofs were flat and were places where you went and had uh, times of, me you had meals, and it was a very common thing to walk on the roof. But 12 months later, after God had given him this prophecy, if you don't repent of your pride, if you don't humble yourself, you are going to be over. And 12 months later, there is no repentance. One of the first things this teaches us about how God breaks us of our pride is number one on your outline this morning, and that's this, by his patience. Have you noticed in the scripture, have you noticed in your own life just how amazing the patience of God is with us? The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. One of the ways that we, our pride is exposed is to see just how merciful the Lord is with us. He, he could have immediately bring, bring Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, but he waited for 12 months. Now, of course, God knows all things and could foresee it, but he demonstrated his long-suffering patience. In many ways, Nebuchadnezzar wasted a year. Have you ever felt like you've wasted a year before? Some of you are going, I've wasted a lot more than that. But, but I mean, literally, this is what he threw away a year. I remember my freshman year of college, where all, I was up in the dorm with a, a, a lot of other freshmen. We're all getting used to college life and studying. And I noticed uh, uh, some guys across the hall from me, I was majoring in Bible and had a minor in history. And I felt like the guys across the hall from me were majoring in ping pong. Uh, every time I saw them, they were playing ping pong and pool in our lobby. And at the end of the uh, beginning of the next semester, they looked at me and said, man, we're all on ac academic probation. Uh, one of them had a .9, one of them had a .7, one of them had like a, 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 real, a real winner had a .1.1. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. And essentially, they were at a fairly expensive school and had wasted an entire semester of study. 
And, and maybe you felt like that before. There's moments of your life you wish you could get back because you've ignored God. And maybe right now you're in the middle of ignoring God of an area in your life. And God's word to us this morning is to, let, is to be mindful. Yes, God is patient, but he also is just and will act. And oftentimes the patience of God is something he uses to show us our pride. Now verse 30, it all comes to a head, and as he's walking on the roof, it says this. He said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty? Wow, it's a mouthful. Do you know the person that actually says what he's thinking? <laughs> There's almost no filter from the mouth to the thoughts and the mind. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we've all thought ugly things, and oftentimes they come out, but this is extremely pointed in its pride. It says, I have built the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty. My power, my majesty. It's the opposite of what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 5.1. It says, by his grace and for his namesake, he's called me to be an apostle. It was by God's grace and for his namesake that Paul wanted to live, but Nebuchadnezzar wanted to live by his strength and for his own majesty. And so one of the ways that God exposes our pride is, number two, by exposing our words. Here's the thing. All of us struggle with pride to some degree, to some level of self-centeredness in our minds and in our hearts. But somehow we've learned that socially, People don't like to be around arrogant folks. The braggart, the one who's boastful, is not well-liked by others. And so what we learn to do culturally is to mask our pride. It stays in our heart, it stays in our heart and our minds, but we sometimes learn to discipline our tongue not to tattle on our proud heart. But what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's case is he said, forget about it. His heart was so overflowing and overwhelmed with a sense of his own greatness and satisfaction that it couldn't help but now come off his lips. And so one thing I want to encourage you to do is to, is to ask God for a great awareness of pride on your tongue. Of course, pride in your heart and in your mind, but when it comes to your tongue, it has really gone past a line. It should go. All of it's offensive to the living God, but it's gotten extreme when it comes to your tongue. Because somehow we learn to mask, disguise, and quell. But Nebuchadnezzar was in full frontal explaining just how great he was. And so our words are often an instrument of God to expose in our life. Now, <clears throat> one thing we note about God is that he is one who carries through on his threats. This scene in verse 31 is amazing. And once again, I wish I could see and capture what's going on here. But it says, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. We don't exactly know much, any details about this voice, likely from the very voice of God. But it says this, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you. 
until you've acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men who gives to them anyone he wishes. In verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Can you imagine this scene? Likely when he was making this proud boast, there were his advisors around him and he was explaining to them and gloating and all that he'd accomplished and then before he could finish, before the words came out of his mouth, there was a thunder from heaven. And the Lord has said, I have been patient. But enough is enough. And immediately what he said was fulfilled. Now, I just kind of wonder if he's sitting there talking and then he began making animal noises. That's where my mind went this week. It was like, for my glory and my majesty, and then all of a sudden, everyone's looking at what's going on. And, you know, he kept on making noises. And I wonder if they brought on him a little bowl of water or something to, to lick like an animal. Or maybe brought him some, I don't know, some Alpo or, or, or something like that. But all the, they were like, what's going on with our king? What's going on with the all-sufficient one? And one of the things this principle teaches us, number three in our outline, is that God breaks our pride by following through on his judgments. Do you know how you respond to the person that makes threats but does not follow through? Well, we learn to blow them off. Now, as parents, we aim to be consistent. And we aim to not say things that we're not going to follow through on, for the good or for the bad. And I remember one day, I was a young father and I was in line at a pharmacy and I learned a lesson. Uh, my kids were at home, and had they been there, they may have been running around touching everything in the store like the guy in front of me. But he was saying, okay, quit doing that, stop doing that, and finally he pulled out something that can send terror to a preschooler. He said, stop touching that, or you're not going to get anything at McDonald's. And I was like, whoa, he's throwing that one down pretty hard. Well, guess what that kid did? <laughs> kept touching everything. It kept touching everything. Stop it, just stop it, and kept touching everything. And he, he, was he was talking to the pharmacist, and I was just back there right behind him. And uh, the pharmacist said, yeah, you got a wild one there, huh? And he said, yeah, oh, she knows that she's going to get whatever she wants at McDonald's anyway. And I thought to myself, well, the threat meant nothing uh, and, and had no effect because there was going to be no follow-through. And in my mind, that moment, I'm like, Lord, help me be the person that always follows through. Now, it's hard for us to be consistent, to follow through with everything we're saying we're going to do, but I want you to know, God does not have the same problem as we do. When God makes a threat in Scripture, so to speak, and there are many places that we wish there was a more pleasant word to say than threat, but when God says, so to speak, that there will be a consequence for our actions and there will be punishment, there will be judgment for our behavior, the living God will follow through with it. And we can trust that it will be so. Now, uh, uh, but his motives are awesome. His motives are good. He wasn't trying to injure. He wasn't trying to merely embarrass the king. But the king wouldn't learn something. Look at the last part of verse 32. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
That was the whole thing that the Lord had been trying to impress upon the king for years, and he simply would not get it. Now, by the way, <laughs> maybe there's been something that you've been trying to, quote, get for years, and you've resisted, you've resisted, you've resisted. It might be that God has allowed difficult circumstances in your life so that you will finally get it. It could be that that is what the living God is up to in your life. And so don't resist him because our living God will follow through on his judgments. Now there's a fourth principle of how God breaks our pride this morning. And he breaks our pride by, number four, by allowing us to go through disgrace. Verse 33 says immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claw of a bird. I interesting. Now, there, there is some historical references by people like Josephus and others that claim that such an event happened in history. There's, there's not much of a historical framework for it for him completely going insane there are technical psychological problems and mental disorders where one acts like an animal uh, for a period of time and he, there was a loss of insanity it was it did come on to him by God it did happen but I, I think it shows us that pride makes us act like a brute beast you see we should be people that are humble that are acknowledging god and that want all the attention in our life to go to who god is much like warren said in his testimony pride makes a beast out of us and this is exactly what he became and god was pressing in on him closing in on him allowing him to experience humiliation and disgrace for the purpose of understanding who god is you see under number four it says this Continuing in pride leads to humiliation. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Now, all of us have been embarrassed before. But I, I want you to know this. Our embarrassment is shorter-lived when we have less pride in our life. If you're deeply embarrassed, ashamed of something in your life, try humbling yourself before the Lord and asking God to take away, to reveal and destroy pride in your life, you'll be amazed at how little embarrassment you taste in life. But there was great shame for this leader because he was full of pride. And when pride comes, the scripture says, then comes disgrace. Do you know what humiliation can be, though? Humiliation can be the best thing that ever happened to us. It was Charles Colson who was in, 19, in the early 1970s or late 60s in the Nixon administration was a special advisor to the Nixon. And he was, had direct access to the White House anytime he wanted to, could walk in, and Nixon had him on a very short lease asking him all kinds of questions. He says that when he would walk in and out of the Oval Office that his heart swelled with pride. A successful D.C. lawyer was now an advisor to the most powerful man in the world. Well, in 1973, Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal and was one of a few that ended up serving time in prison and served nine months. Here he was, a wealthy, powerful man, full of himself, and now was going to the most embarrassing place 
he could ever go to. And right before he went into prison, he, a friend had been witnessing to him, and he had been reading Christian literature and the Bible, and God opened his heart, and he became a believer. And the humiliation he experienced in prison now became a new chart and purpose for his life. He became a minister in prisons and a great Christian thinker, and it all happens beca- happened because he experienced humiliation. This morning, if you experience humiliation, allow it to be the best thing that ever happened to you. It can be by the grace of God when you turn your heart to him. Now, in the beginning of verse 34, there's an interesting phrase, and it says this, at the end of that time. It's interesting that sometimes you're in the middle of a trial, and you say to yourself, this is going to go on forever. And in some, in some ways, some trials might continue all in this physical life. Maybe it's a health matter, or maybe it's a condition that our own actions have brought upon ourselves, so to speak. But there is an end in eternity, and oftentimes our trials have an end in this life. And the scripture says, at the end of that time. And one of the ways that God breaks our pride also is, number five, by never giving up on us. Others give up on us. We give up on ourselves. It appears hopeless. We throw our hands in the air. But the scripture says in 2 Timothy 2.13 that he will be faithful even when we're faithless because he cannot disown himself. God is stuck with his own loyalty and faithfulness and has committed himself to his people. He will not give up on us. Well, there's an amazing transformation that takes place in verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Look at verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, and he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now you remember the purpose of the injury. Remember the purpose of the condition. It was so that you might learn that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And we see in verse 34 and 35 that he finally learned that he was not the great sovereign. That life wasn't about him. That it wasn't about his majesty and his glory. That God is in control and can be trusted even when not fully understood. I was reading an article this week in a book by John Piper called A Godward Heart. And he describes, many of you might remember, the, in 2007 there was a bridge in Minneapolis that collapsed and 13 people were killed. It was right by the church where Piper is the pastor. And he was putting his 11-year-old daughter to bed that night and he was praying with her. And she prayed a prayer that impacted me. She said, Lord, Please don't let anyone blame you because of this tragedy. Help people in our city learn to fear you. There was a great theology in that 11-year-old girl as she put her head to bed. She knew that God was in control, even though a tragic thing could happen. And it was her prayer that people would realize we should stand in awe that God is sovereign and not blame him. And this is what the king has learned to do, that it's not our job to sit there and question God's sovereignty, but to trust his sovereignty. Our nature is to question, but our hope must be in him. And so principle number six, God breaks our pride by turning our affection 
toward him. It, it says again in verse 34 that he raised his eyes toward heaven. God raised his eyes. God lifted up his eyes toward heaven. And A, under number six, the principle is that we must learn to praise God's character. That's what he was doing in verse 34 and 35. And then in verse 36, it says, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. He goes on to talk about how his kingdom was restored to him in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the kingdom of heaven, the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. So, so B, under number six, he learned to honor God's blessings. Yes, the blessing of his kingdom was restored. It, it, it sounds amazing. If the period was indeed seven years, it's amazing that a kingdom would be there waiting for him to return. Many suspect, it, it's only a conjecture in history, that, that likely Daniel, who was so astute with the affairs of the kingdom, could have run the kingdom for seven years while the king was basically going insane and kept it going for God's purposes, knowing that the time would end and he would be restored. Regardless of what happened, he had a brand new outlook as he went back to work. Now, Warren, who used to be a powerful construction worker, is now a driver for our thrift store. And you may have seen him. He goes and picks up furniture in the villages and all retirement areas, and he is full of joy. He gets to share his faith. He takes... Uh, he, he takes furniture and places to people that are poor and can't afford it if he learns of a need, and he has joy in serving the Lord. Now he glorifies the Lord, as before he glorified him. And so when, when God breaks us of our pride, we learn to honor God for our blessings. Now, the last thing I don't want us to miss is the last phrase in verse 37. It says this, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar has a new outlook on pride. Uh, pride was something before that he obviously treasured. It was a value of his. He wanted to boast as much as he could. He wanted to draw as much attention as possible. But now he wants nothing to do with it because he's seen God's attitude towards it. And he realizes too that God will push it out, will meet it out of us. And, and so letter C under number six is that when we turn our affection toward God, we learn to have God's perspective on pride. Now, as I mentioned last week, this is a painful topic, but maybe God has exposed in you your desperate need of him. I remember the first time I came face-to-face -face with my pride. I was reading a book. I was probably 18 years old. I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity, and there's a chapter in there called The Great Sin. And I was like, wow, I wonder what this is about. This sounds spicy. I'm going to maybe learn some things and share this with other people who are struggling with this great sin. And the great sin in that book was called pride and self-conceit. And as I read that chapter, I realized that my heart was filled with pride. I had a nice little glaze of Jesus, but life was all about me. And God began to chip away and expose that in my life. And maybe you've had a moment like that, or maybe God is engineering this passage and this moment for him to deal with that issue in your life. And maybe Pride has been such an issue that it's kept you from doing the most important thing you would ever do in your life, and that's give your life to Christ, to humble yourself, to admit just how much you need him. As we take a moment and consider this powerful story and our response to it, I'd like us to bow together. And as we're bowed before him, what will your response be to the Lord today?